0: Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I talk to creative people about how they do their thing and how they keep it going. This week, my guest is a writer and publicist from Key West, Florida, Carol Shaughnessy. I met her on my press trip there about a month ago. She joined our group of journalists for breakfast at a place called Two Friends. That's been there a long time. It's very popular. And there was an article in The Menu about a local named Mel Fisher... And this uh, treasure that he had found. And I asked Carol about it. And she told me this whole long story over breakfast with all of us. And I was fascinated by it. And I was like, would you mind telling this again um, with my podcast? Would you mind being interviewed? So um, on my way out of town, I stopped by her place. And we did the interview. And then she took me to the airport. Um, could have been more nice. It was really fun. Um, I w- was not sure when to post this. Because I didn't know how... Carol had come through the uh, hurricane, but I heard back from her, and uh, she said that Key West is faring far better than a lot of the Lower Keys and parts of Marathon and another place called Isla Morada, Morada, something like that. But uh, they lost power for a few days, but it came back on, and uh, she said that the motto of Key West, which is one human family has really been in evidence in the wake of Irma, and that's been very heartwarming to see. So I'm glad they're doing okay and uh, hope that everybody down there um, continues to recover and get back to normal because um, it's a really beautiful place. Um, before I get to the interview, I just want to encourage you to check out DennisAnyone.net. You can see the past, past podcasts and pictures from things, and you can donate to my virtual tip jar, which is always appreciated Um, And also follow the Dennis Anyone Facebook group. We'd love to have you join that. All right, that's enough plugs. Without any further ado, here is Carol Shaughnessy. Hey there, I am coming to you from Key West, Florida. It's my last day here, and I'm heading to the airport. But first, I got to stop off with our guest uh, today, Carol Shaughnessy. She's a local writer and a publicist. I met her yesterday with a group of journalists, and over breakfast and she had so many great stories I like pulled her aside and said hey can we do a podcast and she said yes so welcome to the podcast
1: well thank you and the first thing I have to tell you is what are you doing leaving I know
0: I know well a lot of people that we've talked to that live here came down as a lark and then just decided to stay I think that's a common story with people
1: it absolutely is if you are supposed to be in the keys you will find your way to be in the keys trust me on this it happened to me
0: how did it happen to you when did you first come here
1: I grew up in Minneapolis. Okay. A place that is uh, not subtropical.
0: No. Like, and Mary I, Tyler Moore.
1: Mary Tyler Moore, and I hated the cold weather. Right. So I was taking a break when I was 20 years old. I was taking a semester off from school, the University of Minnesota. Right. And a friend of mine said, hey, I've got a friend in Key West. And it's really cold up here right now, so let's go down there and we'll come back when it gets warm again in Minneapolis. Well, it was February. Okay. I'm a fairly tall woman. The day I left, the snowdrifts were up to my shoulders. Wow. And the wind chill temperature was 58 degrees below zero. So, at that time, this was the late 70s. Right. And at that time, the Keys were um, very poor, but... In a wonderfully colorful, funky, rich in life, but perhaps poor in monetary, and no one cared. Right. So I get down here. I step off the nine-passenger plane to our, what at that time looked very much like a little third-world airport. And right across the street, there was the ocean. And it was incredibly blue. And the sky was bluer than I had ever seen before. Wow. And there were palm trees. And I thought, okay, uh, this is really different than Minnesota. And I called a cab to get to the the friend of my friend's house. And the taxi arrived, and it was pink. And I thought... Okay. Again, very different than right, Minnesota. Right.
0: Exactly. Never seen that before.
1: And I'm smiling. You know, it's right. like I'm I'm nonstop smiling. And we drove through these narrow streets with incredibly bright colored flowers. I had no idea what they are, and some of them I still don't. <laughs> and and there were little white picket fences, and there were houses that were. They looked like something out of a storybook. They were, they were beautiful, but ramshackle. And, right. and two days later, honestly, two days later, I realized that for the first time in my life, I was home. And I called my mother, and I said, You know, you might as well just pack up my stuff and send it, because I'm not coming back to Minnesota. Wow. And I never do
0: what did your family think back in Minnesota?
1: They were um, surprised, but I was, by that time, they realized that I was um, the eccentric in the right. family. So, so um, they went with it. And uh, to the point that several years later, my sister moved down here. And several years after that, my parents moved down here. And my dad is gone now, but my mother is still with us and uh, living in Key West. So
0: you brought the best of Minnesota with you.
1: I did. That's awesome. And I never did go back. Why should I? Yeah. I mean, it's gorgeous here, and my family followed me down, so done deal.
0: There you go. So yesterday morning, we had breakfast at a place called Two Friends. Is that the name of it? Yes, yes. And I was reading in the menu the story of this... Treasure Hunter, I guess is what they would be called, called Mel Fisher, and you knew the whole story, and I was fascinated with it, and I can't believe there hasn't been a a movie about it. He's a guy who searched for treasure for a long time, but we're not going to give away the ending. So um, I'd love to hear, I think uh, my listeners would love to hear that story,
1: because
0: you were were pretty... I was
1: part of it. Yeah, Yeah, you were in The Mist. I was... was, On the sidelines, but close in on the sidelines. And And you wrote
0: about it a fair amount, is that right? I did. Yes,
1: I did. It's it's one of the greatest things that I have ever been blessed to be involved in. Mel Fisher and his wife, Dio, and their family, and a group of salvage divers and historians and archaeologists spent 16 years looking for... The treasures and artifacts from the Spanish galleon Nuestra Señora de Atocha and the Spanish galleon Santa Margarita, which had sunk in 1622 somewhere. somewhere
0: around here. Off
1: the Florida Keys, somewhere. And these ships were carrying... Goods from Spanish colonies in the New World back to Spain. They were carrying incredible stores of, of wealth because it was the quote tax that was owed to the monarch of Spain for that, that year's period. Right. And Mel and his family were early dive pioneers and, and early treasure salvage pioneers. And they discovered the story of the Atocha. Mm-hmm. and Mel discovered the story and became obsessed by this shipwreck um, and sent a young historian to the Archive of the Indies in Spain to find out what he could about the shipwreck and about where it might be. And it, they pinpointed it as, as somewhere 30-ish miles off Key West. And until that time, they'd been looking in the Upper Keys because the local lore said that it went down in the Upper Keys. Well, right. as it turned out, that was a whole, that was a bunch of other Spanish galleon shipwrecks. Right. But, so they started searching in Key West and it was a very ragtag, passionate search. Of, and it was a
0: group of people, like it, it was his was family. Yes,
1: his family and, and his Divers and archaeologists and historians that were that were his staff. Right. And uh, sometimes, because treasure hunting is a very expensive uh, yeah. undertaking, particularly when it's underwater, um, because you don't just walk down on the ocean floor and go, oh, there's a gold coin. Right. Um, it, things that have been underwater for several hundred years can be buried in 10 feet or 20 feet of sand and silt and... Um, anything that is iron or metal is covered with coral growth and incrustation so that it just looks like rocks or pieces of coral. Right. So it, it's a very um, electronic-intense and labor-intense undertaking.
0: Do they have devices that they use above the sand on the bottom that lets they, them know this is maybe a good place to dig?
1: They do. They, there's a, a thing called side-scan sonar. Mm-hmm. And that, you operate it from the boat and and you move the boat in a particular pattern so that you know you're covering a particular area that is, that is determined to be, you know, that day or that week's search area. And the side scan sonar will alert you if there is some sort of big metal thing right. under the water.
0: And then you dig.
1: And, well... It's not quite that simple either <laughs> because it could be 10 feet, it could be 20 feet. Right. And, and uh, we are in a marine protected area. Um, so Mel and his organization had to get permits, which of course they did you right. know, because they, they said, okay, you know, here's, our, here's our documentation that, that supports the fact that this is here, so we need a permit. They got the permit. Uh, but then you use things like um, an airlift which is a, like an underwater vacuum cleaner that pulls the sand up a long tube until it's right under the surface of the water, and then the sand just sort of rains down. And that gives you the opportunity to... Uh, it gets the sand away, so it gives you the opportunity to investigate an area of interest that right. your side-scan sonar and other electronic equipment has determined. And there are also some things like underwater metal detectors. It, that's, not the tech, that, that's not the real name, but that's what they basically That's kind are. of what they do. And so... After 16 years, which encompassed um, tragedies, including the loss of of three divers to Mel's son and daughter-in-law and a longtime diver on the team, were killed when a salvage boat capsized. And the the others could not. It it was so fast, the others couldn't get to them. Um, It was a a heartbreaking and, and very often thankless task. And Mel was a man with a dream. And this search truly was a modern-day embodiment of the American dream. Mills, Mills' motto was, Today's the day. It's possible that today is the day we will find the Atocha treasure.
0: And he had an idea what it would be, right? Based on the manifest, did they Based, know this they, is the kind of stuff that we might find?
1: The archive of the Indies contained the manifest of the Atocha. Right. And that explained, you know, the, because... The things that were not smuggled, and as it turned out, there were a lot of things being smuggled on that ship. But the things that weren't smuggled were listed on this manifest. Right, they were
0: the things that were declared. The
1: things that were declared, and you know, coins and silver bars and religious artifacts and um, just uh, gold coins, gold bars, uh, incredible amounts of of things that, in today's money. Honestly, in today's money, because some of it is still Unfound in today's money, it would be close to a billion Dollars Wow! Listed, listed on that manifest So, in 1985 They knew they were getting close And you might wonder, well, okay The ship went down, so it's Somewhere on the ocean floor looking Like a ship. No <laughs> Because the way it went down It was caught in a very Bad storm, and the bottom Was torn out of the ship And, uh, To make a long story short, the ship was then blown along a 10-mile area with things sort of falling out because the bottom of the ship was destroyed. Right. And so all of that had to be documented and searched and found. Now, it hasn't actually all been found, but in 1985, um, Mel was actually buying a new pair of fins, as far as I know, And I was dating the head archaeologist at the time, and he was in my kitchen having breakfast, and he got a phone call. phone call said, Duncan, you better come in because we just found a reef of silver bars.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Now, a reef of silver bars is a lot of silver bars. They just stretched practically as far as the eye could see along the ocean floor. And this was it. And they knew that this was it. And not only was it what turned out to be about a $450 million store of treasure, but the artifacts, the, the navigational tools... Yeah, you
0: talked about that.
1: There were more astrolabes, which is a particular type of navigational tool, found on the Atocha and Margarita shipwrecks than have been found anywhere else ever in combination. Right. Um... The, the day-to-day objects, um, the the pottery where they stored their olive oil and their foods and their wine was incredible. The tools, the uh, the muskets, the cannons.
0: You talked about a pair of scissors. Oh, my goodness.
1: This, I've been fascinated with the Atocha and Margarita story for a long, long time before they found... What they call the main cultural deposit, and what—that's
0: such a clinical name for know. like this amazing thing. I know
1: it's okay though. It's all right.
0: No, you got to you got to keep keep a level head around it. Yeah, so, you do. Yeah. you do.
1: When you th- if you think about it, it's you, you would just sit down and babble under your desk. I for know it's a crazy. But this pair of scissors was the artifact that hooked me.
0: That really caught your imagination
1: because. They had found certain things. They had found a number of things along the way. They'd found some gold. They'd found some gold chains. They'd found some cannons. Everything that pointed them to know that they were in the right direction. But, of course, you know, there was this ten-mile scatter, scatter trail. And so they did exhibits of some of the things that that they, in, that they had found along the way. Right. And one of them in one exhibit there was a tiny pair of scissors and next to this tiny pair of scissors was the the coral growth the incrustation that they had taken it from I must have stood in front of that tiny pair of scissors in its little glass case for 10 minutes because all of a sudden this almost mythical tale of treasure and search became oh my god there were real people like me on this ship. This looks exactly like my nail scissors.
0: Where were you when you were looking at them?
1: There is a, um, a historic Civil War era fort that in Key West that is a museum. Right. And it was, it was at the Fort East Martello Museum. And I'll never forget it, just standing there. I was, I was like, turned into a pillar of salt for yeah. ten minutes. And uh, from then on... You couldn't have kept me away from from that story, from that endeavor.
0: Right. Now, where was Mel when the discovery was made that, well, we found something? Was he, he was, out there or was he... He here? was
1: wandering around in Duval Street. He was buying a new pair of fins as far right. as the story goes. Yeah. And so to the point that... Um, they called one of the radio stations and said, if anybody sees Mel, and they announced on the air, if anybody sees Mel, tell him he's got to come in because they just found the Atocha. Tell him to get to the office.
0: That's crazy. <laughs> this, everyone knew he was looking for it. And then the day that it's, it's found, he's, he, they have to kind of track him down. Yeah. Um, what year did it go down? Capsized. Do we
1: 1622.
0: Know? 1622. Wow. Yes. yes. Was so. it roughly where they thought it would be? Or was it, wow, was it like, oh, that was a little, we had to go a little off the beaten path?
1: Interestingly enough, it was found ten years to the day after Mel's son died. Oh, my God. In the place where Mel's son thought it ought to be. So... Wow and Mel's other sons and daughter were con- had continued the search as did he and his wife and they had a very dedicated team believing that today's the day but the day that was the day was had 10 that years meaning, to the day. had that meaning
0: for them Was it something he kept up consistently all, almost every day or would they take a month off or like how does somebody keep something going like that for 16 years
1: you know, I, I wish I knew. And <laughs> it was it was a consistent effort. It was an ongoing effort. As I said, it was very, very expensive. So there were times when um, they had to put fundraising at the core yeah. of the effort. And there are times, even in the Keys, there are times that are not optimal dive weather. So there are seasons that you search right. and seasons that you don't. And was, um, at, was
0: he working at other jobs, making money in other ways?
1: No. this was, this was the Atocha. This was
0: the dream. What did the people in the town think of him? Did they think, oh, he's crazy, or one day Mel, or like, what? you know, because... Oh, yes, both. Both, <laughs> right, because over 16... It's, for a couple of years, we're like, yeah, he's going to find it, and then you're like, I'm worried about Mel, they're still chasing... You but, know, like, how does the town they react? they kept
1: finding... They kept finding... They kept the finding place.
0: enough to keep him going.
1: Um, yeah, they kept finding enough. And in about 1980, they found a lot of margarita treasure from the Santa Margarita treasure and artifacts, and that helped keep them going. And Mel established a a Maritime Heritage Foundation, the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Society, because his focus wasn't, oh, one day I'm going to find this treasure and I'm going to be rich. It was, one day I'm going to find the Atocha, and it's going to help tell an incredible story about maritime history and I want to share it
0: with people. Right.
1: And so... He wasn't
0: just in it for the money or the no, riches.
1: No, he wasn't. He was He was. He was passionate about the story, passionate about the dream, and the dream came true. Now, I will say, there is still a lot of Atocha out there and still a lot of Margarita out there because the things on the manifest have not all been a found. A lot of them, yeah. Mel's descendants are, are looking for what is still out there what is still undiscovered and um periodically they find things too they find they found um not too long ago they found a magnificent gold chalice
0: oh wow and
1: somehow who doesn't
0: love a gold chalice
1: most things most metal things that are found are you know covered in incrustation or or the weight of the sand and the water has bent them totally out of shape so that conservators have to put them back together again. And much of that conservation and that artifact study goes on right at the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum in their conservation labs and in the Fisher family's conservation labs right here in, in Key West. But this gold chalice was different because somehow it had been protected by something something larger over it that took the weight of the sand and the weight of the water and when they found it yeah it was it was a little beat up but i have i have been following the story for so long that i'm one of the ones that 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 they generously inform when something big happens right you're
0: on the call list when In something K- big yeah. happens that's cool so
1: that so that we can do a story about it or yeah. whatever this was so big, this discovery. They couldn't even tell the media what it was.
0: The chalice.
1: Yeah, when the boat was still out there. Right. They were like, "We've got something. You need to be at so and so at such and such a time when the boat comes in."
0: How fun! We've got something. Isn't that exciting? Oh, you it, don't was, know what it, is? it was
1: fantastic. It was fantastic. So I had my crew. You know, we had we had because. Um, I work with the Florida Keys News Bureau in addition to the Keys Public Relations Agency. And so we had our our crew, and we went out there to where the salvage boat docks, and the captain said, look, and there it was. And it was this magnificent gold chalice on a kind of a foot
0: Uh so
1: that it stood up a bit. And it was dented and beat up and they drank champagne out of the chalice oh, that wow. day. How to big celebrate. are we talking? About? I would say the the bowl was if you cupped your two hands, yeah. if a small person cupped their two hands, okay. the bowl would be about that yeah. about that diameter.
0: How cool. I
1: mean, it's it's a magnificent find and a priceless artifact. It's not something that you these things tell such an incredible right. story. A shipwreck like that is truly a time capsule of the era in which it went down. Yeah. The sailors' lives, the passengers' lives—those things are all there.
0: Right, amazing. What was it like for Mel and his family after they found it, or they, they came into this windfall? Was it theirs? What happened to the? Did they? Do, is it finders keepers? How does that work?
1: It's not technically finders keepers, even if you have. And and this isn't actually how it goes down, but it's it's close enough. Um, Like a gold miner in the old west would stake a claim. Right. They had to. They had to claim an area and provide documentation as to why they thought why they deserved that claim, as in why they thought that something was there. there were there were attempts by both the state and the federal government to take a good bit of the treasure to say that you know this is in our waters yeah we we should have it um, and Ultimately, the case went a Key West attorney took the case took Mel's case to the Supreme Court.
0: oh my gosh, and after all of that, all of those years well,
1: this was kind of in the middle of it, yeah. it was kind of in the middle of the yeah. of the discovery but of but the Supreme Court ruled based on um, ancient maritime salvage law that technically most of it belonged to. You know, again, because of the places, the place where it was, the type of waters it was in, technically most of it belonged to the finder, and Mel and his family worked very closely with the state. They worked with uh, even the government of Spain because they ultimately donated a cannon to the to the monarchy of Spain.
0: Here, here have a cannon. <laughs> we have a,
1: well, you know, what?
0: let's give them a cannon. You know what? I think Spain should have a cannon. <laughs> That's- yeah, kind of. But were, but were people in Key West following that case and, like, didn't everyone want Mel to, oh, yes. th- to do well Absolutely. from it? Absolutely. After that well, much commitment and that much work?
1: But it was also, you know, you know, in a way, Mel kind of epitomized the spirit of the Florida Keys because we are very independent, irreverent, offbeat um, and
0: and you don't care what people think or say or
1: no you know what I mean no that's that's true this I think because of the keys position and at, at the tip of the of the Florida mainland and an island chain a 125 mile island chain of Florida Keys that were not all connected until 1912 by the railroad right so, Everybody kind of learned to take care of themselves, take care of their neighbors, and be self-sufficient. And and that self-sufficiency, whether you fell in love with the place and and stayed like I did, or whether you were born here and never left.
0: And that means you're a conch.
1: A conch, yes. See, I learned that. You've learned that, and you know how to pronounce it. So Thank you. You get like 25 points for... Each one. Right. Okay, good. Um, but Can I have a cannon.
0: No. Yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. It's, uh,
1: you're not the, you're not the you're, queen I'm of Spain. I'm not even on the list. Yeah, you're not the queen yeah, of I'm, Spain. I'm so, just you know.
0: lobbying for a little shot glass or something. For
1: uh, um, But so it's like independence and self-sufficiency is kind of bred in the bone here.
0: Yeah, it's part of the DNA.
1: Yes. And, and Mel was Mel and his family and his his team... Are an incredible example of that. What a story. Yeah. There actually was a movie. It was not a very good movie. Somebody really needs to make, make a, a good great movie. movie of you it. You could yes.
0: see the cast, you know, all the ragtag bunch of guys. Yes, and girls absolutely. And yes. Absolutely. What, what, what was it like? I would imagine after looking for so long for something and then finding it, then you're like, oh, what do I do now with my life? Was there, there a bit was, of that going on?
1: I think there was a, a, a lot of that because. You know, not very many people find $450 million worth of treasure in their lifetime. But right. when you've been working toward a dream and that dream has, has consumed your passion and your creativity and your time and that dream comes true, then there is kind of a, of a reset because you, what do you do then? Right. You've achieved it. Now what? Right. So there was a bit of that, yes. And and a lot of the people, many of the people who were what they call the golden crew, the right. ones who were on crew when they found the Atocha, um, many of those people have gone on to really wonderful, significant careers. Um, but But I will say, after an adventure like that, you know just becoming an insurance salesman or something, yeah. that's not going to fly. <laughs> exactly, you know, right? I think not. I'm
0: going to go back to school and uh, study, uh, you know... Accounting. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. No,
1: no, you know, that's not going
0: to fly. Talk to me about the day of the Emerald Rain.
1: Oh, my goodness. As I said, when they found the Atocha, at that time I had been dating the the head archaeologist for quite some time. And... So therefore, I became really good friends with most of the contract archaeologists that were brought down to take part in the excavation because you know once you've found, you find it, you have to you have to responsibly yeah. bring the artifact up. Yes, you have to you have to analyze it and catalog it and um, photograph it and and uh, treat the artifacts with. Uh, Both respect and with the conservation care That will allow them to to survive for generations So there was a huge team of archaeologists that came in And I became good friends with most of them And one of the archaeology the, The head contract archaeologist was a professor in the Midwest And he brought some of his grad students down with him And so one day I was at their house, you know, the place that they had rented, and a couple of the grad students came in, and we said, so, what happened at work today?
0: Right.
1: You know, underwater on the attention site? Yeah, that's your office. What happened at work today? Said, well, you kind of wouldn't believe it. We had quite the day, because that was the day that the underwater vacuum cleaner that I mentioned, which is the airlift that sucks up the sand so that you, clears clears an area of ocean bottom so that you can examine that area. And then the sand kind of floats down through the water and back to the area where it was cleared. Well, the airlift caught and picked up, without anyone knowing it, a cache of emeralds. No, nobody knew there were emeralds on the Atasha.
0: They weren't on the manifest. They weren't on
1: the manifest. These were um, undeclared emeralds. And they were caught in the airlift. And so the guys were working. You know, they were doing the grid pattern. They were doing the careful excavation and noting where everything was. And looked up. and, Yeah, there were a couple thousand emeralds raining down through the water. Just talking, drifting down. Drifting down. And I said, yeah, today... At work, it was raining emeralds. Wow. And they just picked up as many of the raindrops as they could because this was part of, of the unexpected attention. Yeah,
0: something that they didn't know was on there. Yeah. Maybe it was some shady bride money or, you know, something like that.
1: Or se, it could have easily have been the personal property of, you know, one of the nobles because the passengers were wealthy church, um, you know, church people and nobles who were coming home from the new world to right. Spain, so perhaps
0: perhaps it was personal stuff yeah
1: exactly um, was
0: the Supreme Court case was it close was it like 6-3 or
1: you know something I'm sorry I do not know that that's cool I do not know
0: I, that I, uh, I was wondering if one of those one of those nail biters
1: I think it was I, I my best guess is yeah. that it was pretty definitive yeah not too close but I do not remember
0: um was there a um, the the place that we had breakfast the other day? They two said friends. that they two friends. They said that they brought in a lot of it and just had it there for people to look at for a few hours, and then and nobody took anything. And it, that was in the menu. Do, did you remember that part of the story?
1: I wasn't there that day, right? But it would not surprise me at all to to find that when they when they had recovered a good bit of of the treasure and artifacts that yeah they kind of wanted to show it all there's a show and tell at the yeah. at two friends show and tell at two friends because two friends was an incredible hangout for Mel and yeah. for the for the crew um, I used to go out well I went out on the salvage boat to do some interviews one day and this kind of supports the fact that yeah they might have brought some stuff to the two friends and just right. showed it around so I was out on the salvage boat one day at the site and um I had done a couple of interviews with my trusty little tape recorder, and I wanted to sit somewhere quiet and record some of my observations as well. So I sat down in the doorway to the, the wheelhouse. Right. And I realized, you know, something's wrong here, because I was, I was sitting on the sill, but my knees were practically up to my neck. Right. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. Why am I sitting like this? I looked down. And my feet were resting on a row of silver bars.
0: Just a row of silver bars? There was,
1: there was so much, so much, that they just had to kind of stack it around the boat.
0: Yeah. You know? This is like the way people do with bottled water in their pantry <laughs> or just put it anywhere. We'll get to it later. Man, that's amazing. My last question about that story. What does the spirit of it or the spirit of Mel, it, you can see that it inspired, inspired you. In your life.
1: I think a lot of people have been inspired by the story of Mel and by Mel's discovery. Because, as I said, it it epitomizes the the spirit of the Keys. The Florida Keys were founded on shipwreck salvage. Um, and Salvaging boats that were that were foundering on the, the nearby reefs because navigation was not in a very compli- navigation wasn't in a very good state at that time in the early 1800s when the Keys were founded. So, in many ways, Mel's spirit harks back to the very founding of the Florida Keys, and also. The Keys are a place where people can pursue their dreams. People can decide who they want to be. And they get the support and the encouragement to become that person. I don't believe that I would ever have become the writer and the creative person that I am in another location because this isn't the kind of place where, as too many places are, where if you say to somebody, well, I'm a poet or I'm a, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a writer. In a lot of places, people will say, oh, right, what have you written that I might have read? Right. No. In Key West, and it happened to me so many times oh, really? Well, my friend has a magazine and I know she's looking for somebody to do a piece on so-and-so. Or, um, are you a fiction writer? Because Tom McGuyan drinks at my bar and if you've got a book you want to show somebody, you know, let me introduce you to Tom and maybe he can connect you with his agent. That level of support for creativity and dreams is an unbelievably precious thing. Mel found it, and people still find it in the Keys today.
0: Yeah, well, I sort of see it in the in the shows that I've seen, in the, the like the gay community and the drag shows and stuff. There's that spirit. There, oh, yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> people that make their living doing that here mm-hmm. in the Keys, and that's not true everywhere else.
1: Well, I mean, you sit down next to somebody in a restaurant or a bar and uh, ask them what they do for a living, and uh, you know, sure, some people might say, oh. You know, I'm a teacher or I run a gallery. or. But people, it's amazing the number of people that are going to say, oh, I'm a drag queen. Right. Or oh, I'm an acrobat at the sunset celebration. Or, yeah, I'm a treasure hunter. And all of those are accepted occupations here.
0: Yeah. It's all good.
1: Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. You know, instead of like... Yeah, right.
0: There's not that one path that you should do. That sort of this to college, to this, to corporate life or whatever.
1: Like I said, you... I think one of the things that drew me to the keys once I understood it is that, like I said, this is a place where when you decide who you're going to be, there's the nurturing and the freedom to become that person.
0: So cool. Yeah. I totally get it. Um, The rainbow flag that went from sea to shining sea, there's Um, a whole story around that, right?
1: I was lucky enough to be involved with the publicity for Gilbert Baker's rainbow flag. And Gilbert
0: Baker was the person that invented the rainbow flag.
1: Gilbert Baker created the very first rainbow flag, and he wanted to find a supportive, nurturing place to debut... The 25th anniversary flag Right And a couple of Key Westers Greg McGrady and Heather Carruthers Decided You know It ought to be in Key West And it ought to be A sea to sea rainbow flag Because Duval Street Runs from the Atlantic Ocean To the Gulf of Mexico So wouldn't it be cool If Gilbert did a flag And it went from the Atlantic Ocean To the Gulf of Mexico
0: How many miles is that?
1: It's a mile A little A little under a mile and a quarter
0: A little under a mile Okay
1: and Gilbert was just enchanted by the idea. A very cool man. It was such an honor to know him and interview him. Um, and he came here, and he was here for several months, and a bunch of local people assisted him. And he sewed a mile and a quarter rainbow flag, and the day that the flag was unfurled, it was during our Pride Fest celebration in 2003, the day that the flag was unfurled, Somewhere between two and 3,000 people volunteered to carry that flag from the little truck where Gilbert had it all carefully right, rolled up. Right,
0: because you have to pull it unfurl-
1: out. And that was right by the Gulf of Mexico, end of Duval Street. Right. And they carried it all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, end of Duval Street.
0: Where were you when that was happening?
1: I was on the street. I was on Duval interviewing people and, you know... Hugging Gilbert and, you know, and he said, my dream is a reality today. And but then I just interviewed some people on the street to find out exactly what they felt about it. And two of them I'll never forget. One was a woman from Nashville and I had lived in Nashville and I realized that Nashville was not at that, you know, a bastion of of liberality. Right. And so I thought, okay, well, this woman, this visitor from Nashville maybe isn't going to get it. And so I asked her what she felt about it. And she said, oh, my goodness. She said, I cried when the father of the flag was speaking. This isn't just about gay freedom. This is about all of our freedom.
0: Oh, that's beautiful.
1: And there was a woman with a white cane. And her, her friend, her husband or whatever, was beside her kind of helping guide her. And she was one of the ones that was unfurling the flag. And I thought about it, you know, should I ask her, would it be respectful, would it be intrusive? And finally I said, forgive me, but I know you can't see the flag, so why is it that you had to be here today? She said, maybe I can't see the flag, but I can feel the flag. And yeah, I had to be here
0: today. Oh my God, it makes me want to cry. Yes. It's so beautiful.
1: Yes, the flag, they... They dipped it simultaneously. They had, you know, little radios. Right. Simultaneously, they dipped one end in the Gulf of Mexico and one end in the Atlantic Ocean for a sea-to-sea demonstration of pride and unity.
0: Amazing. What Um, happened to it afterwards?
1: It was divided into pieces that were, that have been shown at Pride Fests all over the world. Um... They have and and some of them were donated to various places. Um, Gilbert made some little flag sections for people that he felt had been part of it, and I have a little flag section in my drawer. Oh, you have a little piece. A little piece. I love and it. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Let me rattle off one of, a couple of these sure. observation questions. What's your favorite bad movie?
1: Ah, uh, my favorite bad movie is Club Paradise because it's um, very like. The early Key West, although without the incredibly large part of bags of marijuana falling from the sky. There you go. What is Club
0: Paradise? Who's in that? Club
1: Paradise, Robin Williams, oh, and yeah, yeah. Twiggy, okay. of all things. Oh, wow,
0: wow, wow. What are you good at that might surprise people? Uh,
1: my brain is filled with lyrics, and if you can sing a, you know, start singing or playing a late 70s through late 80s song, I can tell you that song in about three beats.
0: You, you, you just know, boom. Boom. Done. Just a talent. Yeah. Interesting. When was there a time when you were in the right place at the right time?
1: When my friend said, hey, let's go down to Key West until it gets warm again in Minnesota.
0: Love it. Perfect. What's your favorite waste of time?
1: I watch old reruns of Murder, She Wrote on Netflix. <laughs>
0: That's a that's a confession. You really you must feel real safe. I think I feel very honored that you would confess that.
1: Actually, it's not on Netflix anymore. I had to find it on some other free channel because yeah, I'm not okay without my reruns of Murder She Wrote.
0: Why do you love it? Because she because the justice is done.
1: Justice is done. It ends. You know it's going to end well, and the camaraderie of. The fictional town of Cabot Cove reminds me a bit of Key West. I
0: can see that yeah. very like what everyone's there for each other, a little neighborhood. Yeah. My roommate has taken to watching CSI reruns to relax. I'm like, that's relaxing. That's They're not literally relaxing. digging up people. No,
1: anyway. no, no, no. Tell, tell him to try *For Murder*, she wrote. It's much more relaxing.
0: How can people learn more about Key West if they want to go online?
1: Fla-keys.com. It is the portal for everything Florida Keys and and everything Key West and. Do not just, I mean, we want everybody to come down to Key West, of course, but do not just look at Key West. The Florida Keys is 125 miles of fabulous restaurants and fishing and diving and warm-hearted people and things that you just can't not do.
0: Like have key lime pie. Like have key lime pie? I had several pieces. Final question. What what's your favorite thing to hear from somebody visiting like what's what so makes you feel good to hear somebody say on their way out of town
1: that they were enchanted by the people because I think that the the communities of the keys are our greatest strength. We have a beautiful environment we have a wonderful cultural community we have we have incredible um, water sports. But if you ask me what was our greatest natural resource in the Florida Keys, I would say the people. I
0: love it. That's so great. Thank you so much for doing this interview. And now just showing how nice you are and welcoming. You're going to take me to the airport.
1: I am going to take you to in the airport. LA, you can't Begrudgingly <laughs> because I don't think you should leave.
0: <laughs> I don't want to leave. In LA, if somebody takes you to the airport, it's like, wow, you must have something on me. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Bye.
1: Bye-bye. <laughs>
0: Many thanks to Carol Shaughnessy for the fun interview and for also taking me to the airport afterwards. That was very nice of her. Um, As I was getting up to leave and packing up my stuff, I noticed that they had a poster, she and her husband, of Mommy Dearest, the movie, in their living room. And I was like, wow. And, And it turns out that her husband was one of the producers of that movie. And I was like, oh, I wish I could stay and do a whole other interview, but I had to get to the airport. But I thought that was fun. Okay. If you want to help out with the Keys Recovery down there, uh, you can go to keysunitedway.org. They are tapped into all kinds of different charities down there. And there are so many places in the world now that need help. And uh, that's just one of them. It's so scary now. It's like I feel like we should all mark ourselves safe on Facebook every day. Um, But on to other things. I Oh, so this happened. I got Enzo, my dog, groomed on Tuesday and he looks really good and he's, you know, he needed it, but he's been acting so weird ever since, like, doesn't want to eat, is kind of nervous and fidgety and I don't know if, you know, there's no marks on him or anything like that, his belly was a little, um, you know, red, but I don't know, I, I think he's, was he traumatized? He's acting, it's very emotional, like, I don't know, so I'm a little concerned, I'm a lot concerned, actually, and I'm seeing the vet today, so hopefully he will return to his normal, gregarious, uh, fun, fantastic self. All right, that's all I have for this week. Um, I hope that this finds you safe and uh, doing well and hanging in there, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!